I was thinking about this week, um, just about the Sunday and, and wasn't really getting a lot of direction. And it's interesting when the Lord, the way the Lord will speak to me, um, about what we should be talking about and what we should be sharing. Um, often it's just a, it's not like I get this big download of stuff. It's usually like a word or a phrase that will come to me on the other night as I was just, I don't know, I was probably just laying in bed awake and, and it must've been about around midnight or so. And all this, and I was thinking about Sunday and all of a sudden I just had this, this scripture come to my mind and thought really nothing of it, but, uh, but then it began to un, un, unveil, you know, or he used to unveil and, and, and kind of bring forth some, some things that I hadn't seen before about this scripture as, as he always does. And I, and, and of course, I love that about the word of God. What's, what's the word of God? It says the word of God is living and active and it's sharper than any double-edged sword, even divide joints and marrow, um, divide the soul and the spirit. It's, it's, a discerner of the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. But the fact is that, that it's, that it's living and active means that we can, we can go to the word one day and then go to that same scripture, that same word the next day. And the Lord speaks something new about it. So it's never, it's, it's living. It's not something that you're like, Oh yeah, I know that. Like we file it away as knowledge in our filing cabinet you know, always looking for something new. No, we can go back to the same words that we've, we've heard and we've, we've learned through the years and that God has spoken to us through and he can teach us something new out of that familiar word. And um, so in any case, uh, that all, never ceases to amaze me. Every time I go to the scripture, I'm, I'm feeling, I feel that, that newness, um, I mean, honestly, even if we get to where John three sixteen, for God so loved the world, he gives only begotten son, whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. If that ever becomes, you know, wrote to us, um, commonplace, we kind of yawn at it and say, give us something new, pastor. <laughs> well, then I would say that we're, we've, we've fallen. We've mm. slipped away from the Lord because if that, uh, that scripture that is so commonplace doesn't grip our hearts, nothing will. Nothing will. That God so loved us that he gave his son. I mean, it's the heart of the gospel, right? It's at the very foundation of the gospel that he loved us so much that he gave his son as a sacrifice for us to pay a penalty that we owed. But, and he did not owe, but we owed it, but he paid it on our behalf. And, and now we have the opportunity to receive that free gift, that, that beautiful um, work of the cross. And so anyway, um, in considering this, we're going to be going to Second uh, uh, Corinthians. Second um, Corinthians. I, I suppose we'll start at chapter 11, and I'll, I'll comment on it, but our main text will be chapter 12. But uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and as you're turning there, uh, just, let's just go and give a, a little bit of background on, on Corinthians. Right. Obviously, this is the words of Paul. This is his second epistle to the Corinthians. When he, um, when he uh, founded the church in Corinth, uh, he, you know, in one of his missionary journeys, you know, he was in contact with them. He had gotten um, a reports that there was problems, that the church was having problems. And so he wrote 1 Corinthians in response to the problems to try to set some things straight. Um, and he was pretty rough with them uh, in, that, in that letter of 1 Corinthians. And then, and then he, um, he made a, a trip to Corinth, met them in person, and that was a really difficult a difficult trip. He really, he really kind of rebuked them and got them set straight because they were they were really uh, getting off off the uh, out of alignment with the gospel and the purpose of the gospel. And then uh, they, but through that they they begin to repent and come about, uh, you know, come, kind of come through. And then he writes Second Corinthians because during this time. Uh, there were still some people resisting him. 
resisting Paul and questioning his authority over the church in Corinth. And then other apostles or church leaders came in at that time. Uh, and a lot of people were straying away from Paul's instruction and teaching and, and going to these other Christian leaders that were coming in who looked real fancy and, um, uh, you know, act very spiritual and, and, and didn't resemble at all like Paul did. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of, and, and Paul, Paul at one point calls them super apostles. And he says this and, and he goes, I'm not like one of those super apostles. And the super apostles were, you know, kind of like today, you can kind of think about the mega church, uh, you know, where, you know, they've, they don't have a struggling ministry. They're not struggling through uh, things. It's just they, they, they've got wealth and success and all of that kind of, and they've got this big name and everybody looks to them and says, oh, look how spiritual they are because they have a big church, right? You know, and so it's kind of Paul's dig to that and saying that doesn't mean that they're teaching truth. It just looks like they're, looks like they're successful, right? And so he's, he's having this issue because a lot of the people in Corinth were beginning to question his authority. And why were they questioning his authority? Because Paul lived a hard life. Paul um, was not very impressive when he spoke, we gather from the scriptures. Paul um, was one that always kind of came in weakness. Um, he talks about how he does, doesn't come with cleverness of speech, but with the power of God. Um, he, he's, he just, you know, he, he was one that probably on the outside didn't look terribly impressive. And so, um, so he's battling this thought process and people kind of falling away to these other teachings and, and moving from uh, the, the foundational teachings and the authority that Paul has over Oh, the, over the church in Corinth. So um, he, I think I'm going to read a portion of scripture here from eleven, chapter eleven, verse sixteen. Um, yeah, I, I think we'll pick it up from there. I repeat, let no one consider me a fool. But if you do, at least accept me as a fool so that I can also boast a little. What I am saying in this matter of boasting, I do not speak as the Lord would, but as it were foolishly. Since many boast according to the flesh, I also boast. For you, being so wise, gladly put up with fools. In fact, you put up with some uh, someone that uh, put up with someone that enslaves you, if someone exploits you, you put up with someone takes advantage of you, if someone is arrogant towards you, if someone uh, slaps you in the face, I say this to your shame, we have been too weak for that. This is a dig, by the way, to those other teachers that came in. They, when Paul came to Corinth, he came uh, not taking any money from the people. He worked his way, he was a tent maker, and so he made his own way and took nothing from them. While these other teachers come in and starts exploiting this money, you know, I'll come in and I'll teach you, but I won't be paid for it, right? Uh, and, and when he was talking about enslaving them and controlling them, he was talking about these other, these other people. Let's continue on in um, 21. Uh, but, if, if, but in whatever anyone dares to boast, I am talking foolishly, I also dare. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm talking like a madman. I love how he keeps referring to himself that way. I'm a better one. With far more labors, more imprisonments, far worse beatings, many times near death. Five times I received 40 lashes minus one from the Jews. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I, was received, uh, once I received a stoning. Three times I was shipwrecked. 
I have spent a night and the day in the open sea. On frequent journeys, I face dangers from rivers, from dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, and dangers among false brothers. Toil and hardship, many sleepless nights, hunger, thirst, often without food, cold, and without clothing. Not to mention other things that uh, there is in, in the daily pressure on me. My concern for is, is for all the churches. Who is weak? Am I not weak? Who is made to stumble? And I do not burn with indignation. If boasting is necessary, I will boast about my weaknesses. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, Christ, Lord Jesus, who is blessed forever, knows I am not lying. In Damascus, a ruler under King uh, Aretas uh, guarded the city of Damascus in order to arrest me. So I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped from his hands. So let's stop there for a second. Paul's going through because because they're running off. It's kind of like we we see this a lot of times, and uh, I, I've seen this a lot in my ministry where we go in and we start a ministry, we start a church, church, or we 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 begin to um, get something established. It gets underway only to have someone else come in, and you know that that basically steps in on the back of all your hard work and then begins to take all the credit for it looks really good and people start following that other person that happens a lot in ministry and church planters other people kind of come in and take over and what happens is they often slip away and get off of the foundations that were built and initially um, this is what is happening uh, happening to this particular group in corinth and so um and and they're they they begin to say well okay, Paul, you were fine, but these people really know what's going on. And he starts, you know, in his own words, foolishly, he says, no, wait a minute. They don't have any of my credentials. They haven't been, they haven't been um, uh, 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 you know, sacrificed the, to the level that I sacrifice. And you're just running off and chasing these people, right? So he's, he's dealing with this again. All right, he goes on, he continues on here. Um, about this concept of boasting about his weakness. So let's continue on in, in chapter 12, verse 1. He says, Boasting is necessary. It is not profitable. But I will move on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who was caught up in the third heaven 14 years ago. Whether he was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. I know that this man, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which a human being is not allowed to speak. I will boast about this person, but not about myself, except of my weaknesses. So now we have Paul talking about this experience. Now, what's interesting here is that scholars are undecided or, or dis, you know, disagree, is Paul talking about himself going to the third heaven or is he truly talking about someone else? Is he referring to himself in the third person or is he actually talking about a different person? And based on the language and how he kind of switches there, you could make a case for both. Um, and I'm not going to definitively say it's this way or it's that way. Now, I do lean towards the fact that I, I do lean towards the understanding that he's talking about himself here. Because in the context, he's talking about himself through this whole time. So why would he jump out of that context and talk about somebody else? But he refers to himself in the third person because he doesn't want to, again, he's not drawing himself saying, I'm so super spiritual. Mm -hmm. And in fact, he talked about an event that happened 14 years ago. So it's not something like, you know, oh, I was in prayer the other day and the Lord took me up to the, you know, to the third heaven. No, he didn't make himself sound more spiritual than what he was. He talked about something that happened 14 years ago. And he clearly said that, right? So he, he finds himself in the third heaven uh, and he's, he's describing all of these things about himself. Verse six, for if I want to boast, I won't, 
I wouldn't be a fool because I wouldn't be tell uh, because I would be telling the truth. But I will spare you, so that no one can credit me with something beyond what he sees in me or hears from me, especially because of the extraordinary revelations. So now what he's saying is, I don't want people to judge me of who I am because of what I tell you about myself. I want you to see Christ in me. I want you to see Christ in me for who I am, for my actions, for the words that I say and proclaiming Christ. And you make, I'm not gonna come to you and say, you need to listen to me because I'm Paul and God does these amazing things with Paul and takes him up to the third heaven, okay? Hang with me here. So he's dealing with this, this these, how he's seen in all of this and he keeps talking about these amazing things that he experienced but he keeps coming back to his weakness. He says, if I'm gonna boast in anything, I'm gonna boast about or brag about my weaknesses. So he's trying to he's trying to he's trying to draw the 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 church's attention to these great looking pastors that are coming to you in all this strength is not actually strength. There's something else. There's something deeper that you need to be looking for in your own personal life with Jesus, in those whom you follow, and those and those whom you who who you serve with, right? Okay. So now he goes on. Verse seven, especially in the extraordinary revelations. Therefore, so that I would not exalt myself, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to torment me so that I would not exalt myself. Concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it would leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me. So I take pleasure in my weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and difficulties for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Okay, now here's where he gets to the point. All of that that he went in about boasting and, you know, all that he has done in his ministry and suffered for the sake of Christ and all of his, his credentials, which he covered early, he talks about the revelations and, that he had and going to the third heaven. Then he gets down, he goes, but none of that matters. It's about my weakness. And he goes, because I suffered all these things, because I did all these things, because I was taken to the third heaven, the Lord, he's telling us, the Lord didn't want me to become conceited about what I have accomplished, what I've seen, what the Lord has revealed to me. So he says that he was given, he was given a thorn in the flesh. So what is a thorn in the flesh? This is interesting because he says it's a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan come to buffet him. Well, there's some big words in there. And I actually, I did some studying on, on the Greek words because the New Testament was written in Greek. And what were these? Well, first of all, the thorn in the Greek actually isn't like, it's not like we think of like a splinter, right? In the Greek, it actually uh, refers more to like a spike. Okay, this isn't something like insignificant. It's, it's significant, but it's not really going to take you out. But you know what? It doesn't take much. Have you ever had a thorn? I'm not talking about a little splinter, but you ever have a thorn like stick into your foot? Right? I mean, your whole, even anywhere on your body, but especially in your foot. I mean, your whole body, like you feel it. It reverberates your whole body. You limp. You're not right. You're irritable. It's like it's it's like it's something that's always there until that thing is removed. So it doesn't actually take much, but just constantly, like you can't do anything, right? Even if it's a thorn that's on, you know, you, or even a splinter in your finger, or you get or you get it in a real bad place, like under your 
your thing, fingernail or something, right? Yeah, some of you are cringing, right? Just even saying that. Why? Because it's it's this nagging, horrible thing that it's always there, right? You feel the pulsing every time your heart beeps. You feel, you feel the, the throb and that sort of thing. It's something that's always there. Now, it doesn't take you out entirely. You can still function. You can still do your job, but it's always there. It's a continuous reminder. That's what this thorn is. And when he says it's a thorn in the flesh, it's something in his body. It's, it's, you know, there's been a lot of scholars that disagree on what the thorn actually was. I mean, the, the theories are far and wide, right? Some say, oh, he had a headache, you know, like this physical condition with his ears or his head. Other people, I've heard... I've heard he had some sort of eye condition. Some people said, no, it was actually because he said it was a messenger of Satan come to buffet him, that it was just the, it was the, the, the spiritual warfare that was always against him wherever he went. Uh, others would say this, others would say this. The point that I would like to drive is it doesn't say, so don't make it say something that it doesn't say. We don't know and we don't know for a reason. Everything that's in scripture is there for a reason. Everything that's not in scripture is not there for a reason. So when Paul, if Paul wanted us to know what it was, he would have told us. But we could suspect, because he always talks about himself coming in weakness, we could say that it's something that people could observe in him. That people could see that, there was, that he had some sort of impeding issue whether it be physical, whether it would be the opposition coming against, we don't know. But there was something that was always there with him. And it was always nagging. And that's the point. The other side of this is, and this, is, this will kind of blow you away, when it says it's a messenger of Satan, the Greek word messenger, do you know what it actually is translated into most of the time? It's only like three or two or in the King James Version, it's only like two or four times that it uses the word messenger. What it actually says, angel, right? You could actually translate that to a thorn in the flesh, an angel of Satan. So we're talking about something demonic here. We're talking about a demon, a demonic activity that was happening in his life. And you think, well, how in the world does Paul, who's cast devils out of everybody, how in the world does he have a demon that's affecting his flesh somehow to keep him from being prideful? Like, why in the world would he do that? Wouldn't he, why wouldn't he just cast it out? He couldn't. And I think about this, and I'm like, well, wait a minute. What about Job? All right? When we think about Job. If you read the book of Job, beginning the early on, you see that there, there was this dialogue of Satan going into God's courts. And, and they were having dialogue on this. And then God picks a, picks a fight with the devil and says, have you ever considered my servant Job? It was actually God's idea to meddle with Job, not Satan's. It was God's idea. And so Satan says, well, I, I can't touch Job because you have a hedge of protection around him. He says, but he says, but if you remove that protection, he'll curse you to your face. And God says, it's a bet. <laughs> okay, here's the parameter that I'm going to allow you to do to Job. Interesting, isn't it? God allowed. He says, okay, I'm going to allow you, devil, I'm going to allow you to mess with Job but only in this way. So he does, right? And what, family members were wiped out, right? And he didn't curse God. God won that bet. Satan comes back and says, well, if you let, you know, you know, if you let me touch all of his possessions, right? Or, you know, I'm not getting necessarily all in the right order because I don't have it in front of me. And, and so he then, um, and he says, okay, he, you know, he doesn't curse him. And then he comes back and he says, well, you know, if, you, if I touch his body, if I make him sick, you know, he'll curse you to the face. He goes, you can make him sick, but don't kill him. So then he gets the boils, right? I mean, it's just this horrible, like, dialogue. And poor Job, poor, quote unquote, poor Job is in the middle of it all. Okay? And we see this dialogue and say, God, you're so cruel. 
Why would you allow him to do that? God doesn't work that. He protects us from all these things. He protects us from, from Satan. He protects us from these things. Yeah, he does, and he's defeated them. But then there's also the enemy is, is still at work in our lives constantly, right? He's the prince of the power of the air. This is his dominion. He works in the world, and we have to deal with that. And sometimes God uses the, the devil as kind of like a tightening wrench. He does. And that's what he did with Job. Why? Because it had nothing to do, it had nothing to do with the devil. It had the, it had, and, and Job was a righteous man. The Bible says he's very, he, he was the most righteous, right? But God wanted to bring him to a deeper understanding of who he was. God wanted to move him to, the, to, un, to, to understand Job. And, and so in his suffering, and of course all of his friends come over and start telling him, oh, well, you know, if they started off good and they went bad, right? They started off encouraging and said some really good things, but then they got into, okay, you must have sinned, right? You must have sinned. What did you do that God is punishing you? And we look at these bad things that happen in our lives, these quote-unquote thorns in the flesh as punishment sometimes. And, and so he was like, I didn't, I didn't sin, I didn't sin. And of course, then you know, we fast forward. And what is it, 20, 25, 30, 30 chapters of this dialogue back and forth with the friends. And then finally, uh, say, uh, then God comes on the scene. And first thing he does, he rebukes the friends. He goes, you guys get out of here. Where were you, right? You guys know what you're talking about. And then, and then he starts dealing with Job. And he brings him to this place of a deep understanding of the goodness of God and, and, and talks to him about his omniscience, right? His all-knowing, all-powerful, all, you know, everywhere present. He's, he starts talking about these things, brings him to this great place of revelation of who God is, and then goes and restores his whole life. He brings him to a place that he couldn't get to any other way, a deep revelation, and it came through hardship, and it came, came through pain. It came through the enemy being a tool, in God's yeah. hands to bring in this deep re- point of revelation. Now, I'm not comparing, I don't, I'm not trying to compare what Paul's saying here to that as an apples to apples comparison. I'm just saying, generally saying that there's this understanding. Now, I will also reference that Paul himself, Paul himself, what we read in some of his epistles where he says that he handed people who were preaching another gospel, he says he handed them over to Satan Satan himself, he says, I handed them over to Satan so that they would be humbled, that they would be made right and then come back. He was ready to receive them back into the fellowship, but he actually handed them over. Now, what does handing them over mean? He says, you know, that we can get into a debate of what that actually means, but it's the idea that, that you're, the enemy will come at you and he will, he will buffet you but it's not to destroy you. The God, God is never a wanting, allowing that to destroy you, but to bring you to a place of strength. Okay? So, so I don't want to debate on what the thorn in the flesh is. I don't want to debate any of that. I think if we debate that, we're missing the point. The point is, it could be any number of things. And even if he told us what it was for him, that doesn't mean that it's not the principle that, you know, we deal with sicknesses, we deal with um, uh, certain uh, habits in our lives and things that we struggle with that like, you know, how many people did I see that have come to the Lord? I saw this one guy, he was smoking two packs a day of Marlboros, he was, uh, you know, addicted to nicotine, all that kind of stuff. He got saved, he quit cold turkey, never had a side effect. It was supernatural, he just, done, boom. But he had other things Yep. That he struggled with for years and yep. years and years yep. after. Yep. A sort of thorn in the flesh. Yep. I don't know what it was, right? You see another Christian, they don't get off the nicotine. No, they struggle through that. But then other things, God just delivers immediately. Why? Why is it like that? I don't know. I don't think any of us give a, have a, a super definitive answer. But I do know that all things work together for the good, for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. He uses both the good and the bad to bring us to the place where we need to be. See, they work, see all things in that scripture, all things work together. The Greek word means, it means they work in concert with each other. All things, the good and the bad work together for our good. 
They work together. They work in concert. It's not something for us to shed off. It's something for us to pay attention to. And we live in a society where we want to anesthetize every pain and discomfort in our lives. Mm. Come on. Yeah. Without getting into it, our medical community mostly is, what they do is symptom and pain management for the majority of what they do. The majority of our, of, uh, of our medical um, practices today are not to get to root cause. It's not to actually diagnose exactly what's happened and heal it. It's to deal with the symptoms of it in a lot of instances, not in all, but in a lot of instances. We're seeing that, right? God's after the root. He's after root cause. Of, he's, he's after the things in our heart that need to be rooted out and tore down. Amen. You see where, I'm, see where I'm heading with this? Now, so these, these things, these hardships in our lives are not necessarily in our lives for negative purposes. So we have to embrace them. Now, now, we go through exactly the same thing that Paul went through here. He says here, he, he said this specifically. Now, he knows why this happened. He knows why he had this messenger of Satan, angel of Satan, that, that's given him the thorn in the flesh. He knows why, because he, he says it. He goes, so that I would not exalt myself. He is self-aware enough to know that if I didn't have this, I would become conceited. I would become proud in myself. And I would not rely on the power and the authority of Jesus Christ. He knows this about himself. But he reacts to it the same way that the rest of us do. Because he goes on, he says, concerning uh, this, I pleaded with the Lord, how many times? Three times uh, f uh, that it would leave me. Now, let me talk to you about that for a second. Does that mean we only pray three times for something to leave in our lives? No. In fact, a lot of scholars believe and feel that the, when he says three times, it was actually a, a figure of speech. It was a Hebrew figure of speech, meaning many times. All right, it's no different from you and I. It said, if I told you once, I told you a thousand times. All right, what do we mean by that? Well, obviously not once. We've said it more than once, and we definitely didn't say it a thousand times, right? It's a figure of speech. And what's a figure of speech mean? What's it meaning? Many times and often. I say this frequently to you, right? Well, a lot of scholars, Bible scholars, believe that the three times here is actually a figure of speech, meaning I've repeatedly say, said this, okay? So I'm not saying that we should ever go three times and stop praying, you don't, you don't ask after the third time, right? In this, or if it is literal, after the third time, Jesus spoke to him and gave him an answer. And I would say that if we take anything away from that, that's what we should take away. Keep praying until you get an answer. If you don't hear anything, keep praying. Keep asking, right? The Bible says that we continuously ask, continuously knock, right? Continuously seek. We continuously do these things. And he's saying to him, he goes, three times I asked that it would leave. In verse nine, but he said to me, my grace, and this is, and if you have a red letter edition, of the Bible. This is Jesus speaking. Jesus said to him, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is perfected in weakness. Oh, here it is. This, this is the phrase. This is the moment that all of this was leading up to. The revelation of this idea of power and weakness. Paul received this word from Jesus where he said this first. First was he made a statement and then he added a qualifier to it. The statement was, my grace is sufficient for you. What's that word sufficient mean? It means it's able to accomplish everything that needs to be accomplished. My grace, my grace, not because, what is great? Well, let's step back a second. I'm getting ahead of myself. First, let's define the word grace. I like the way you describe it. Unmerited favor. Unmerited favor. Grace is unmerited favor. God does something for you, not because 
of what, because you earned it or because you did something good, but because he loves you. Hallelujah. He has given you unmerited favor, grace. He goes, my grace, my unmerited favor is sufficient for you. It's able to come through 100% with full power for what it needs to be accomplished. Meaning it's me and nothing else. It's my love and my favor on you and not because of your own ability and your own worth or your own value. He says, it's because of me. My grace is sufficient. Everything, Paul, that you are facing and the difficulty that you're facing is my sufficiency. Because I am not going to compete with your ability. It's going to be my ability or none at all. Because if you didn't have the thorn in the flesh, you would get conceited and you would rely on your own abilities and talents and, and, and experiences and not on me anymore. Amen. And Paul understood that. Paul understood. He goes, this is why. This is why you've got that messenger of Satan, that angel of Satan that's messing with you. And I'm allowing it. That's what he's saying. Yeah. I'm allowing it. Because I know you, Paul, and you are going to get conceited. You're going to get boastful. And you're not going to rely on me. I need to keep you weak. Why? Because that's the qualifying statement. For my power, Greek word dunamis, where we get the word dynamite. Mm -hmm. Explosive power, able to accomplish anything. My power displayed is perfected, made complete in weakness. Mm. You have to be weak for my power to take place. You have to be brought low. You have got to bring yourself down. You have got to say, it has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with him. Yeah. Then he can move. This is why we need opposition in our lives. This is why we need pain in our lives. It's like that old science. Uh, we, I think we talked about this a few weeks ago in one of our meetings. The, the biodome experiment, I think it was called, where they had this perfect ecosystem that they created, the best plants and everything, and da-da-da-da-da. It had all, every plant had the best nutrition and the best uh, soils and the best water and, you know, everything was scientifically all put down. It was a complete disaster because it was missing one element, opposition. The plants didn't have to battle opposition and they failed. They didn't thrive because there was no opposition. It's the same technique. It's the same reason why if you see a butterfly after it's been in its cocoon and it's working itself and trying to get itself out, if you help it, it will die. If you take that crucifix, chrysalis, chrysalis, I was way off. That chrysalis and you kind of like open it up. Oh, come on, little butterfly. I'll help you. Yeah. You'll kill it. Why? Because it builds its strength and its ability to survive from fighting its way out of the cocoon. It needs, we need the resistance to to fulfill and to, to have the strength, to have the power of Christ alive and working in us and to accomplish everything. If he made, if allowed, if he allowed us just to be easy for us in our sinful nature, it was supposed to be easy, by the way. It was supposed to be easy. Eden was the, it, it, it melt, it, the word Eden, the Garden of Eden, right, actually, uh, meant pleasure. It was a pleasurable, it was meant before the sin, before the fall, it was supposed to be a pleasurable place. Easy. They had to work. They tended the garden. God said, you know, and they had to multiply. And I mean, there's, you know, raising kids and stuff does take effort, but it was, it was a sinless, non-cursed, easy environment. It was supposed to be that, right? Yeah. 
But when sin comes in, when sin came in, everything changed. Now there's a fighting. Now we need the opposition in our lives in order to thrive in God. We need that resistance. There has to be a continuous dying of our sinful nature. Uh, continuous, that's what Paul talks about. He goes, I crucify the flesh. How often? Daily. Daily. We have to carry our cross around with us. Jesus had to carry it once, but we carry it every day. So we need that opposition because we want the power of God to come up and to be made evident in our lives. Then when we get out of the way because of a resistance, when we're reminded of our weakness state, our weakened state, and we say, Lord, it has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with you. I must decrease so that you must increase, like John the Baptist said. I must decrease so he must increase. We're made to be brought low and not have any confidence in our abilities, in our flesh. We do this all the time, guys, right? We do this all the time in our work and in our relationships. We, 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 we lean on the experiences of our past. We lean on our own wisdom. We lean on our own uh, uh, intellect and not on God. And we do things and we accomplish things based on our strength, our power, not his. Ultimately, where does that leave us? It leaves us wanting. It will eventually fail if it doesn't fail from the very beginning. We've got to be brought low so that his power can be brought high and be demonstrated. And that's what he was saying here. He's like, this is what happened to me. And then he goes on and he says, he says, therefore... I will most gladly boast all more about my weaknesses. And I love this statement. So that Christ's power may reside in me. If I don't remain weak before God, his power isn't going to be there. It's not. If we're not moving in power, if we're not moving and seeing God's power displayed continuously in our lives, our relationships, our finances, our health, and all these kinds of things, if we're not regularly seeing God's hand move, often the case is we're relying on ourselves. We don't trust him. We see ourselves as strong. We allow our pride to, to, to always win. And we, we put God on this sort of back burner and say, I'll only pray and come to you after I've exhausted everything else in my own strength. God won't compete with that. God won't compete. He will not share his glory with you. He will not share his glory. If you have anything successful in your life, or so it seems, and it was on, the, on, on your own labor, on your own intellect and your own ability, he'll sit back and he says, that's not me. But anything that he does in, his, in your life, he wanna make sure that you're out of the way because he's not gonna share his glory with anyone. Not like that. It's gonna be him or nothing. So he, then he goes on, Paul says, I take pleasure in weaknesses insults, hardships, persecutions, and in difficulties for the sake of Christ. Pleasure in it. I take pleasure in it. We don't do that. We don't take pleasure in the difficulties of our lives. I'm reminded of James, right? What does James say in James chapter 1? He says, count it all joy, brothers, when, to, when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. But let endurance have its perfect work, that you will be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. There's a process of embracing the pain to become mature in him so that his power can be displayed in our lives. Help me, Lord. You want God to move in your life? Get out of the way. Make yourself low. Embrace the pain. Don't anesthetize it. Don't keep taking the pills to get rid of it. Right? Pain, here's the thing, guys. In our bodies, just think about our bodies for a second. When you have pain, 
Pain's not the problem. Pain's a symptom. Pain is never the problem. You go to the doctor and you say, what's the matter? Oh, I have this pain here. Well, the question is, what's causing the pain? Why is it there? It has a purpose. The pain is, is a way of your body to communicate that something is wrong. Okay? So when we have the pains in our lives, we have to ask our question, the question, why is it there? Not just to get the pain to go away. Because can, I can go and I can take the Tylenol or I can take the pain medicine, right? And I'm like, ah, I feel better now. You're not better though. You might feel better because the pain is gone, but the problem is still there. And as soon as the pain medication wears off, what happens? The pain comes back. Why? All you did was mute the communication of your body. So don't treat the pain. Treat the root. The pain in your life... We have, to, we have to embrace those things. And then Paul, we take, Paul takes it a step further and he says, I take pleasure in those weaknesses. I take pleasure in those things because of the name of Christ. And he says, for when I am weak, I am strong. It's the key. Embrace those things and watch what God does. We've got to be willing to look at pain a different way. When, when my son was going through uh, his cancer treatments at five years old. I got a lot wrong. My, my wife and I got a lot wrong. We didn't do a lot right. Because it, uh, if you've never gone through that, I pray you, number one, I pray you never do. But it is a horrible, horrible life experience. And when you go through horrible life experiences, you don't always handle it perfectly. And I didn't handle it perfectly. I got... I was so stressed out and wigged out. I, I, started, I started drinking alcohol in excess. Why? Because I wanted to numb the pain. Because the pain, it just hurt so much. And I, started, I wanted the escape from the constant anguish of, of what we were going through. That's what we do, right? We turn to other things because of the pain. We got to get these things out of our lives. But I did one thing right. Maybe a couple things, but one big thing I did right during that is I didn't ask God why. Amen. To ask God why is really not a good question. <laughs> and mostly because it doesn't, it's not that he doesn't want you to know why. He typically won't answer that question because you won't understand why. Because he's trying to take you a place that you don't know even exists in your spiritual walk with him, just like he did with Job. He's going to try to get you to a place and the why actually doesn't matter. And if you actually, and even if he does share with you why, what do you do with why? Oh, I understand now. But that needs to lead to the better question, which is what? It's what? <laughs> that was the question we asked. What? What, God? What do you want me to do? What do you want me to learn? What do you want me to hear? It's the response to it. Now, now I'm putting faith to my prayers. I'm putting action to my prayers. Because the why really is like, why me, God? What did I do wrong? What is, it doesn't matter. I know that this situation that I'm in right now, you're going to do something powerful to reveal your glory. You're going to do something amazing in my life and in my family's life, the people around me. As long as I know what you want me to do and what you want me to learn, I simply want to be obedient because this has to be all you and not me. And I'm going to remain weak. I'm going to remain second place in our relationship. I'm going to take all authority from you. And you're going to move in power. And your power is going to be displayed and perfected. And everybody's going to see it. Everybody's going to see your glory, not me, not mine. These are the things that God does in the pains of our lives. The guardrail I would like to put up, though, and as a closing thought, is I need to warn you against something. 
Don't take this and apply it to every pain in your life and say, well, God's doing this and God's doing that and it's all God's thing. You might be experiencing a pain in your life just because you're disobeying God. <laughs> I remember a bumper sticker my, my, my dad had. He, put it, he didn't put it on his car, he put it on the refrigerator. And it says, you gotta be tough if you're gonna be stupid. Sometimes we disobey God and the result is pain. We sin and there are consequences. I'm not saying that every pain that you have in your life is something that God is using strategically to bring you to a place that it's a, that it's a thorn in the flesh. Oh, it might be a thorn in the flesh, but you put it there. <laughs> Self-inflicted. Amen. So can we put a guardrail up? Sometimes when we have pain, we've got to say, oh, I'm experiencing this because I disobeyed the word of God. I disobeyed God. Mm-hmm. And this is a consequence of my sin. And I need to repent and get her out of it. That's not what, what, what we're talking about here. But even yet in there, pain is an indicator that something is wrong. So let's get right. Look at the pain, embrace the pain, analyze, understand why it's happening, what you need to do with it, and see God move in power. Amen? Amen. Amen. God, I just ask that you would bless us with a revelation of what you're doing in our lives. Each one of us, God, I know, are experiencing a level of pain and discomfort in our lives. And each one of it has a purpose for us to, to learn from and to 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 act, uh, uh, to do something about. And so, Father, I just pray that you give us the ability to see through your eyes, give us the ability to hear through your ears. Help us to be self-aware and to, 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 to see, look into our hearts and say, Lord, search me if there be any wicked way within me. Lord, root it out. Help us to repent from those things. Help us to embrace the things that, that um, uh, in our lives that are, that are keeping us in a place of, this, of weakness so that we can embrace and see you become strong, that your power would be perfected in our weakness. I thank you, Father. I just pray that you allow these words to marinate in our lives. Anything that, was, uh, that is of you, God, I pray that everyone would hang on to it. And anything that was of me, Lord, I pray that they would throw it away. Yes. And I just ask, Father, that you would speak to our hearts. Holy Spirit, do a work within us. We give you glory. We thank you, Lord, that you are patient with us. We thank you are good and you are oh, kind. Yes, and we want to embrace the things happening in our lives. Lord, we thank you for the opposition and the hardship in our lives, Lord, so that it can bring you glory and that we can be changed more into your likeness, more into your image. And we give you glory today. Yes, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. amen.